You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. The outlaw Josie Wales comes to mind for this episode, Martin. I don't know who Josie Wales is. Well, Josie Wales was actually played by Clint Eastwood and was one of the many great Western spaghetti Westerns that he made, of course. And today's show is all about a wonderful institution or extension of that in Arizona. Arizona, what a fascinating part of the world. I'm, uh, as, as you mentioned last time, Carl, I'm heading over there in a little while because we're um, going to have a few guests interspersed with our Australian guests on, on, on the HeadX podcast over the coming months to really take a, a, a searching global look at what the leading edge of innovation and change is in our sector and how it applies and how it can be applied in an Australian context. It's uh, very exciting times. So who have we got this week on the show? Well, um, this week, you recall our 50th episode. Was, it was so exciting to have Michael Crow, the president of Arizona State University, as our 50th guest. We've got a lot of publicity out of and a lot of um, interest out of that because he's a, a really big and bold um, leadership figure in the sector, um, has been seen so globally and, and very much so by an audience in Australia. And for him to tell us the high-level strategy of the Arizona State University story was absolutely fantastic. That was our episode a couple of weeks, two or three weeks ago. Um, but we're, we're now going to be talking to one of his key support supporters in the ASU story, and Phil Regia, who's the the, um, the CEO of something called EdPlus. So he used to be the Dean of Business in, in, in Michael's University. He's been at ASU for a long time, but he's now heading up the internal um, online education part of the operation, which has been where so much of the growth and innovation has happened within that university. So really looking forward to hearing his story later today. And before we do, is there anyone else that you've come in contact with in your career that can tell a similar story? You know, coming from the outside looking into this sector, Arizona State's, you know, renowned for doing things differently and being an incredible sort of, not turnaround, but evolution story. Is this happening elsewhere in the world that we know of, Australia or the UK? Um, I think it does from time to time. I mean, I, I, our sector is, uh, our sector has some unusual characteristics in that it's, you know, we've had universities for thousands of years, and some of them, the Oxfords and the Cambridges and the Sorbons and the Bolognas of this world, um, have had very high-level reputations for an awfully long period. In Australia, we've had universities for a shorter period of time, obviously, but our our founding universities still have really great reputations. But we've seen increase at an increasing rate some real standout innovators emerge from a position of having a reputation for quite different things than being the leaders of the sector burst onto the scene and 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 do um some quite dramatic things usually usually by setting off on a path that's different from other people i mean to we've said it many times that for a long time in this country deakin university was a standout player in in the Melbourne scene and in the Australian scene for its embracing of digital. Um, I'm not sure that 
everyone would necessarily see that Deakin continues to hold that role now. And places like RMIT, for instance, have been real innovators in particular areas of, of design scholarship and design research and teaching as well for different periods of time. So you do get, you, you can find that long-standing reputations from thousand-year-old institutions in some parts of the world can be turned on their head quite quickly. And I think that pace is just hotting up. I did get that feeling, Martin, just from dialing in and tuning into the energy that came from not only our partners from our HEDEX event, HEDEX Live event in Melbourne last week, but the the people that we had on stage with us. You know, there wasn't there was no sideways glances at one another as to what are we going to do and what are we doing, whether it was gender equity or just general evolution and keeping up with the times. They were intimately and very deliberately tuned into what's required right now and what their plan of attack is. So I'm quietly excited about all activity, whether it be from the traditional universities or the more contemporary ones. We're going to get to our interview now with Phil, just after these comments from our sponsors. While the global pandemic has forced the education sector to shift online, OES have been delivering high-quality online education services for over a decade. Having built thousands of online units and supported over 50,000 students, OES partners with universities across areas including learning design, learning analytics, simulations, student support, and more. Discover how OES can help support your institution's digital strategy. Visit oes.edu.au. Our guest today on HEDEX is Phil Regeer. Phil is the University Dean for Educational Initiatives and CEO of EdPlus. And in that role, he oversees ASU's EdTech collaborations with multiple external partners and technology specialists. Phil was formerly the executive dean of the W.P. Carey School of Business at ASU, having earlier graduated from St. John's College. And he completed his doctorate at the Guise College of Business at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Phil, it's a pleasure to have you with us and welcome to HEDEX. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. And Phil, just um, from that introduction, you, you, you've got a PhD from how I understand it, a pretty mainstream and very successful public university at Urbana-Champaign. It, for me, has that traditional image and reputation, but you've gone from there to become a business school dean at, at ASU. And I wonder, just to start off the interview, can you help us understand what drove you to make the change to start your academic career at ASU? And what was that transition and change of culture? What was that like for you in joining, joining in on what is now the well-known ASU success story? Well, uh, thanks for the question, Martin. And I have to tell you, when I came here, uh, it, the, the only well-known success story at ASU was we were apparently one of the top-ranked party schools in the country. Um, I got here, I have been at ASU for 36 years. Um, and so I've seen a transition from a, a pretty good regional uh, state university uh, to what is now the most innovative university country by uh, virtually all standards. Um, just in terms of my transition, you know, why I started my career at ASU, I started my career at ASU because I was a traditional um, uh, aspiring academic. And uh, as a result, I had more loyalty to my discipline than I did to the university. Let, let, let me help you develop it from there in what I know of your story since then, because mm -hmm. that, that Dean of Business role led to you then progressing to lead the initiative of EdPlus, which as mm -hmm. I understand it has been much of the more recent success story. I never thought of it as a, 
a party town university. I only think of it as the innovative university I've learned about yes. in, in more recent years. And, and EdPlus appears to an outsider like me to be central to that. And you're now the CEO of that. But what's the story of EdPlus? Mm -hmm. What does it do? And how does its role fit in with the, the current then, or the recent and future, as well as current, ASU strategy and point of difference? First off, I don't think there are organizations uh, quite like EdPlus at any other university in the U.S., at least as far as I'm aware of. Um, I moved over to what is now known as EdPlus uh, in 2009 at the time. I was asked by the provost to move out of my executive dean position, and she asked me if I'd take over uh, basically a failed organization called ASU Online, an extended campus. Every university at that time had an extended campus function, and Mike Crow had glommed, uh, had attached to it also an online education arm, but we hadn't been very successful. Um, now, my interest in this stemmed from the fact that in the School of Business, uh, we had successfully, very successfully launched an online MBA program uh, five or six years earlier. And I had watched it. And so, you know, I, like most faculty, was very skeptical about it, but I watched it. Uh, the faculty tested it. We tested the learning outcomes. We uh, asked ourselves, are the students equivalent to the students in our current programs? They were actually more qualified than the students in our evening program that we were comparing them to. And the learning outcomes were the same or better than what was occurring in the evening program. And so I had become a, uh, an advocate uh, within the university uh, for online education. And so when I took over ASU Online and Extended Campus, the charge at that point was pretty simple. It was grow the number of online students and grow the number of online programs. And by the way, those two things are you know, we didn't just want to provide, in fact, I shut down the part of at the extended campus function that just built online courses for on-campus students. What we wanted to do was build complete programs and attract new students. And this is part of the access mission of Arizona State University. You know, we have a charter that says we will be known, we are a public research institution that will be known for who we include and how they succeed. And if all you're doing is building online programs for your existing student population, you are not expanding the base of students that you can appeal to. And so our idea was to grow online programs, uh, degree programs that would attract a, a, a different student population. And at the time, I didn't realize it, but I quickly realized that the market for online undergraduate education in the U.S. is really the basically 40 million Americans, uh, the 50% the of all Americans who begin post-secondary education and don't finish with any type of certificate or degree after six years. And right now, the, the size of that population is 40 million and growing every year. You've read about the fact that uh, over the past three years since COVID, there's been about a three and a half million person decline in people attending higher education in the US. That's a disaster for the country. At the same time, the market for online education is gonna to continue to improve. And so our idea was grow the number of online programs, grow the number of online students. And 
we've been successful in doing that. Um, when I started, we had about 400 online students in four programs. Um, this fiscal year, we will have 83,700 students, uh, just shy of 84,000 students uh, distributed across about 250 programs. And about two thirds of those programs are at the undergraduate level and about a third are at the graduate level. And so that, that at least explains the growth of ASU online. But as we got good at online, and I can explain a little bit about what we did and how we got good at doing online education, we began doing other things as well. Uh, and so we had developed partnership, for example, with uh, the Mayo Med School. Uh, we developed partnerships with Starbucks. We developed uh, partnerships with the World War II uh, Museum in New Orleans. And as a result, online by itself was no longer descriptive of what we were. And so we created an umbrella organization uh, called Ed Plus. That, that's an absolutely fascinating story, Phil. And that, that, that level of growth is phenomenal, isn't it? And, and I can see mm -hmm. how central what you've been doing in Ed Plus is to the, the wider story of, of what ASU has achieved. You, you talked about the partnerships there with, with, um, with Starbucks and others. But mm -hmm. as, as I understand it, Ed Plus is also maybe in a different way from ventures that haven't been so successful and as ambitious in other universities, but other attempts at building online presences. Mm -hmm. um, Ed Plus has been different, as I understand it, in having lots of external partners and technology specialists that you're working with. I wonder if you can explain what, what that model is, what, what, what those partners provide and how those partnerships came about. Yes. And so, you know, we, we wouldn't we wouldn't be anywhere without uh, collaboration, without partnerships, without uh, uh, really surveying the landscape and seeing what's out there and then asking ourselves if they can help advance what we're trying to do. And we do this constantly. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I would say that um, a very early and central partner to uh, ASU and ASU Online was Pearson. Uh, we. We worked with a unit at Pearson called eCollege very early on uh, to provide marketing and enrollment services and success services. Uh, just recently, uh, after 12 years of, of very close collaboration, we announced that we were parting ways, uh, but Pearson got us started. Uh, they, they helped attract students for us uh, and really fueled our growth for a, for a decade. Um, along the way, uh, I learned as, uh, as executive dean of the School of Business, I learned a lot from the management faculty, and, and I was always intrigued with, you know, Porter's models and, and strategy and, and leadership, and, and one of the things I took away was this idea of strategic competitive advantage, and one of the things I said that we would do that would be would differentiate ourselves from the beginning is we were always going to stay on the leading edge of what was happening in technology and educational technology. You know, I had seen in, in the span of seven years from 2003 to 2010, when we start, built our first MBA programs, they literally cost us $200,000 a piece for a course, for one course. By 2010, that price was down to $25,000. It's probably half of that now. And I'm not even adjusting for inflation. So, you know, the, the, the educational technology has driven the cost of development down tremendously. 
And along the way, the number of ed tech tools has just risen astronomically. And so we always wanted to stay on the leading edge of what was happening in terms of technology. And one of the things we did to make sure that we would be on the leading edge is with a partner of ours, uh, uh, a, a, a private equity company called Global Silicon Valley Investors or GSV, we started something called the uh, ASU GSV Educational Technology Summit. The first year we had, it was 2010, we had 300 people there. And the whole idea was to bring together ed tech investors and ed tech companies and begin trying to create a market for educational technology products, have investors see what was available, have the people who had ideas be able to have access to money and capital. Uh, the first year we had 300 people, we declared it a great success. Uh, we just completed our 13th summit in uh, April in San Diego. We had 5,500 people in the hotel. We had another 10,000 join us virtually. And so we have had uh, what I'd refer to as a cat, the cat's bird seat, you know, uh, uh, the ability to see and survey what's out there, what the new ideas are, what the best ideas are, and partner with these companies, sometimes as a vendor, a vendee relationship, oftentimes in the co-development co sense. Um, so for example, we have been working with adaptive learning companies uh, since literally 2010. Uh, at that first educational technology summit, I sat, next, I sat down next to a guy named Jose Ferrer, who was running a company called Newton. Um, Newton, adaptive technology company, it was the first of several adaptive technology companies that we worked with. Um, and, we, and, and, and we continue to do that. We're working now with a, a startup out of Stevens Institute of Technology to uh, engineering faculty, a company called Gradarius. Uh, one of the adaptive companies that we worked with for years is a company called Cogbooks. Uh, we had an equity stake in Cogbooks. Uh, that company was purchased by Cambridge University Press, and we now have a big collaboration with Cambridge University around what we're referring to as the Math, Computer Science, and Statistics Accelerator. And so the partnerships are foundational, and those are, those are ed tech partnerships. Um, along the way, we've also had partners like Starbucks and Uber that have brought us literally uh, tens of thousands of students. We have about 25,000 Starbucks partner and Uber drivers now in our, in our programs. We have uh, uh, companies that we have equity stakes in, like uh, Sintana, which is developing a network of global universities. Instride, which was uh, formed with the Rise Fund, uh, in part to replicate the success we had had with Starbucks. Um, and, and the list goes on. I'll just say the partnership is foundational to what we do. Gosh, what, a, what an exciting and complex array of partnerships that you have that you've built up over time. Just, just to pick a couple of those, you talked about some of your adaptive learning technology partners, for instance, mm -hmm. and you talked about Starbucks and, and Uber providing lots of students. Just help me and my listeners understand, what's the business model behind EdPlus and ASU's partnerships with 
that technology mm. provider and that's provider of students. How does that work out as a business as a business model for those three types of organizations? Well, they, they, they all differ. You know, like I say, that business relationships are all over the place and you have to adapt a business relationship uh, to uh, what you're trying to accomplish and, um, and you know, basically what you're trying to do is so is Starbucks. The idea was pretty simple. We wanted to be able to provide a platform uh, that would allow uh, any partner of Starbucks that didn't have a university degree to come to ASU with no out-of-pocket tuition cost. And Howard Schultz, uh, the CEO at the time and the CEO now, uh, once again, uh, regarded education as the benefit that would appeal to his partners in the same way healthcare appealed to them in the 1980s when they were initially going public. And he was the first large company to provide uh, uh, healthcare benefits to part-time workers. And so what the, the way Starbucks, the, the deal is quite, the, the business arrangement is pretty straightforward. It took a long time to figure it out, but it's straightforward, which is ASU provides a scholarship uh, in the form of lower tuition rates to many of, to any Starbucks partner. Every Starbucks partner who applies to the university has to apply for, uh, has to fill out a FAFSA, which is federal financial aid. And if they qualify for federal financial aid, we develop a package for them that you know, will provide them Pell Grants, for example. And then any unmet uh, tuition costs are paid for by Starbucks. And so it's a very straightforward model. Uh, you know, we give a scholarship. Uh, we rely uh, to the extent we can on uh, federal financial aid, direct scholarships. Uh, and anything that's not met by the schol our scholarship and, and the federal financial aid is then provided by Starbucks. Um, you, you talked about vendor and vendee relationships. But sure. A, a lot of times we just pay for services. You know, a lot of times it's like we want to use your service. And, and now, one thing that we can do is we have a big laboratory here, right? Essentially, with 84,000 online students and another uh, basically 80,000 on-campus students, a lot of companies are going to want to work with us because they can get a small, for example, they can get a small um, per student fee, but scaled over thousands or tens of thousands of enrollments. Uh, it makes it uh, a very sustainable, uh, sustainable thing for them. And this, this, is, this is one thing where like uh, many places don't quite understand, you know, we aren't just we, we, it, it's not just a platitude to say that scale is our ally. We're kind of a laboratory for them, and, and, uh, 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 and we've worked very closely with them, and it's just a great company. But again, the idea that scale is an ally uh, is, is, is really, really true in, in many of these technology partnerships. And scale, um, if I think about the looking under the hood of the universities that I've worked in, scale is something that lends itself to the often to the discipline in a, in a business school environment. And, and you've come from mm -hmm. that, that background. So mm -hmm. I, I, I can fully understand how all of the ideas that you're talking about particularly lend themselves well mm -hmm. to business education. But, but you're doing this comprehensively, as I understand it. So the, mm -hmm. the, these strategies apply equally well to all of the, the disciplines covered by a contemporary comprehensive public university today or i'll just say for example we didn't start off with 250 programs and by the way we've never twisted the arm of any department chairs or any deans to bring a particular program on 
but we have had, there have been, uh, electrical engineering was a great example. We knew there'd be a high demand for it. We have about 12 or 1300 electrical engineering students. Now there are probably a thousand students in the face-to-face -face program. Biological sciences came along uh, probably in about 2017. Uh, biological sciences will have, we've got 3,400 students as of spring. Uh, there are about 34, 3,500 students face-to-face. That program will grow well in excess of 10,000 students by the time we're done. And we aren't going to be done with it, but with some of the things we're doing in that program, we'll grow that program to 10,000 students. And here is something that I have to tell you is a very, very important key differentiator for ASU from every other large program. If you get a degree in biology from ASU online, you get it from the biology faculty. It is the same faculty teaching online and face-to-face -face students. They're providing oversight for the programs. They're developing the coursework, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't hire, you know, we don't have 10 faculty and 5,000 adjunct faculty. We have a core, you know, uh, uh, full-time faculty that includes uh, 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 teaching faculty and, and, and tenured faculty and full professors and professors of practice, but they're full-time faculty um, and they deliver our online programs for us the same way that they deliver to the on-campus student population. And so when you ask, does it work for everybody? I'll tell you this, the humanities, history, religious studies, philosophy, they were some of the early adopters and they're extremely glad at this point that they developed online programs because while the face-to-face -face population has slowly has, has let's say not grown uh, uh, as many of those students migrated to STEM disciplines and at ASU, those programs are growing at a healthy rate year over year because they're attracting hundreds and thousands of online students. And so the model, does it work just for business? Nah, it works for engineering, it works for STEM disciplines, it works for humanities. We have degrees in Herberger College of Arts, we have degrees in education, we have degrees in healthcare. It works across, uh, across all disciplines. I mean, so, some people would, would suggest that online and digital education in many universities in the world is still perceived as a bit of a discrete add-on to the mainstream of a university's operations, which might remain, and maybe post-pandemic, many are speculating that they'll return to being grounded in campus operations and delivery. Mm. But that's not the sort of picture I'm getting in, in listening to you and about ASU. Do you, do you feel that we generally, and you in particular, are close to moving on from that point in time of EdPlus being an addition to the operations of the university, and what will this mean for EdPlus in particular and, and universities generally in terms of what our future academic organization mm. might look like, do you think? Yeah, I, you know, I, I really hope online should not be a bolt-on to the university. It should be foundational to the university. And like, like I say, I'm talking about public universities in the U.S. Private universities can do whatever they want, right? Harvard doesn't have to have online undergraduate degree programs, but public universities have to serve a public purpose. And the fact is universities have failed 
to meet the public needs in the US. That's all there is to it. And part of the reason is because they're very hard to get into and very hard to get out of. And we beat students up and we say, call them dropouts and failures and everything else. And it's not their fault, it's our fault. And so online is uh, at ASU, uh, in, you know, one thing I said is, or one thing that was so insightful about President Crow when he started this was that online will improve the entire university. Admissions has to get better. Financial aid has to get better. The registrar's office has to get better. You're going to give faculty 21st century tools that will help them deliver better and more efficiently and more effectively to their on-campus students. It's not just about online student populations. And if we're going to meet our public responsibilities, we need to have more public universities with larger online programs and online programs. And, and, and by the way, this, there, there is a crazy distinction between on campus and online. That's going to go away because students eventually are going to demand, I think rightfully, that they attend the university in the way that suits them best at the point in life that they are at. This is a really fascinating conversation, Phil, and I could talk to you um, for hours. But um, I mean, my last question to you, you've been fascinating in outlining the history of Ed Plus and, and the guts and the, the way it works and, and where it might be going in the future. Are you enjoying leading educational technology initiatives at the most innovative U.S. university at this point of time? Yeah, uh, it, look, it's a great question. It's a fair question. And I have to say, I, I'm one of those people who at the age of 55 was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do in my life. Um, and, uh, you know, when I took over this role, uh, that was it. Uh, it is the best university job I've ever had. And as I said uh, earlier on, I've had several, about every five years, I jumped around and did something new. But this is the best, most fantastic job. Uh, if you're working in this environment with a supportive president and a supportive provost, and uh, the goodwill of faculty, which I have, I just can't imagine. Uh, it, it, it is, you know, it, it truly is hard for me to imagine a job that I would rather do. And that's not just rhetoric. Uh, it's, you know, you, you have every day the satisfaction of knowing that you're serving students who would not otherwise have access to a great education. You're helping rather than harming society. And most of all, the talent that you can attract to work with the students and the people and professionals I work with in Ed Plus every day uh, keep me motivated to come back. They are absolutely fantastic. Um, there's a famous Steve Jobs quote that I'll end up with. He says, we don't hire smart people and tell them what to do. We hire sm smart people and they tell us what to do. And that's exactly what I feel about the people that I'm able to work with uh, in Ed Plus specifically and at ASU more generally. So it's a fantastic position and I enjoy coming to work every day. For being such a generous guest for us on the HeadX podcast and sharing that 37, nearly 37 years of great, great experience and expertise. Thank you very much for being our guest. Thank you, Martin. I appreciate it very much. Well, it's no surprise to me that Phil comes from a business background based on what he just said there. 
No, well, it, I mean, as a dean of business, he's, um, he's really been in the, the sharp end of leading a big academic discipline and an education that's normally delivered at scale. And it's probably not surprising that someone at ASU then leading their um, online offering should come from that sort of pedigree. But, but the fact that he's from a business background means that he doesn't only understand the nature of business education, the business of universities, but he understands the business issues being faced by companies like Starbucks and, and, and Uber that are so important to the story we've just heard there, Carl. I think that's really important. You, you've got these deals being done. You know, Uber and Starbucks, he spoke of, 25,000 students uh, strategically aligned to address the war on talent, to be part of their you know EVP or psychological contract, however you'd like to refer to it. It's a, it's These things don't just happen. You know, I think that's the other thing in this I'm finding really interesting, that you've got to have a certain business acumen and entrepreneurial nature to be able to identify what are these deals, what, what will actually make a difference to the to the industry that's going to benefit us, and they have this reciprocal benefit. So I am I love that, of course, because in business, that's where the world's going, and we're seeing that more and more from the tech companies that we work with and the traditional players like it can be anything from a bank to an insurance firm or whatever. We're seeing that happen in the newspaper day in, day out, and behind the scenes is a richer story. But I haven't, I'm not aware of that, I should say, in terms of higher education and that level of sophisticated strategy being part of their planning. Well, I think you're right to pick up on that. And we, we, look, we've talked about that in some of our episodes. I, I remember the interview we did with David Lloyd of Uni of South Australia and the interesting conversations he talked about with the chair of Accenture in Australia and the ventures that they've had. So, so that's not unheard of, but at that scale and with that form of... I mean, the, the, the alignment of that approach of a business relationship that is also supportive of the purpose of democratising higher education and giving opportunity to access excellence to everybody in our society including the demographic that's very different than that coming out of grammar schools in our capital cities that works in in uber and starbucks like situations in in the u.s and around the world that 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 that's a a business-like relationship but aligned to purpose which is what i found interesting yeah and it comes back to the quality or the pedigree or the style of leader i think this is going to be really critical moving forward that You've got to find entrepreneurial leaders, leaders that are prepared to broker these conversations and have the somewhat uncomfortable um, vulnerability position where they admit that they don't necessarily know what the future holds, but they know they need to do something and they go searching for the partners for the future. If leaders continue to rely on the practices of what what they experience and they observe, they're not going to get there. It's a very disruptive existence at the moment. And you've got the world of tech, the culture of tech and ed tech is naturally and intuitively and natively collaborative. That's how they operate. They innovate through collaboration. So they're always looking for these collaborative opportunities. It's not a transactional selling position, which unfortunately I think is what may have sort of muddied the waters a little bit for traditional leaders where they've been pitched to by conservative professional services firms, been sold something transactionally, whereas tech and ed tech, they are only ever interested in something that's benefiting both parties, because that's how they sustain, that's how it becomes sustainable. So it was interesting to hear Phil say when he started, 2009 or eight or something like that, it was a failed, it was recognized as a bit of a failed offering that then turned around. And it turned around because of their focus on culture. So I think that's going to be critical moving forward for all organizations, Australia and, and um, globally. 
Yeah, well, that focus on culture is um, aligned to what your comments there about bold and ambitious leadership. And in this case, you're absolutely right. I mean, Michael said it in the episode from a couple of weeks ago, and Phil backed that up in, in the interview we've just heard, that education is being transformed and disrupted by technology. And for goodness sake, 50, 60-year-old leaders of universities with a lifetime of publishing and leading academic community, communities, how, how can they be expected to be on top of technology? So for, for a leader to expect to know to be able to do that from within their own organisations is, is doomed from the start. And, and, and what really struck me in that interview was the, 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 the focus on partnerships you, you've described, that succession of conferences that they've set up with an investment firm in, in Silicon Valley to grow to have thousands and tens of thousands of ed tech professionals and ed tech investment professionals working with their university to find solutions to pedago pedagogic problems. I mean, that is a really very different culture and very different approach to innovation than we see in most Australian universities right now. And and indeed, I don't know of any other university that's created either an ed, ed, ed plus-like organisation or that GSV-like conference to facilitate those sorts of partnerships. If, if I was to reflect on some of the better practices in Australian, you know, outside of higher education, Australian industry, you've, you can still have the 50 or 60-year-old leader executing decisions and and hosting involvement using their wisdom and their experience. However, inside that experience should be something that says, I'm only as good as what's coming after me. So they are hiring the the people around them that are experts, either subject matter experts externally, or they've got deep expertise they're bringing into their organization, but as an interface to the rest of the world, because no longer can they be these fiefdoms. They can't be a silo anymore. So I think the work that we're doing in... Um, Headex in in you know chaperoning concierging uh, these relationships and ensuring that you know universities do get um, safe access to understand what a technology or ed tech company has to offer and how it can benefit them without them showing up and pitching is really you know it's 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 worth doing it's something that is uh, beneficial to everyone right now. Oh, I'd go further and say it's worth doing, Carl. It's absolutely necessary. I mean. I'm sure it does happen in banks and tech companies and, and financial services and the other parts of the business ecosystems that you work in. But I, I know absolutely it is the case in universities that because of the route to seniority and the route to um, promotion and office holding being a lengthy, laborious one that involves academic pedigree and achievement, it's... it's Conferences of senior leaders of universities on their off-site retreats are a very unusual demographic. And I can remember universities I've been in at the past, the deliberate attempt to bring videos of students and young people's thinking into that environment to be digested because they don't they're not representing the leadership team themselves were quite were quite confronting to everyone involved because it was just such a different viewpoint and such a different language and such a different need that was being expressed you can't just do it for a couple of videos in a two two day retreat once a year as you're trying to contemplate the future it needs to be an ever-present deliberate act to bring new thinking new dynamic new partnerships into day-to-day -day activity it needs to be resilient and and for and focus for the longer term 
And yes, I, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about where we're going with HeadX in being able to chaperone some of that in some specific events and in long-term relationships with universities in Australia. I think in the lack of them having the, the Ed Plus and the GSV summits of, them, of their own, there's a real gap there. And it's part of our approach to changing higher education for goods to make sure that that, that gap is plugged. We have to do that. It was only four years ago that I arrived at a large university to do their brand positioning and cultural alignment work and was told you were meeting with the VC and the executive, this is where you sit and this is how long you have to speak. Now, I'm being in that role. I was the advocate for the organisation. I didn't have a great deal of care for the pomp and ceremony in that particular um, existence. I was looking at well, how can I help this organization perform today and tomorrow much better? And that's going to mean challenging some of the conventions. And so I remember people sort of looking sideways at me when I arrived to, you know, to say, who, who are you? One, you're probably too young, even though I might have been 45, in making a very clear recommendation based on evidence. Um, and then we drove that university forward beyond expectation because we were breaking a lot of those conventions and we were finding ways to connect with audiences that hadn't been explored previously. Well, and, and it's so hard when you're set up in one way and have all of the, the normal cultural values and, 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 you know, reward systems based upon experience, achievement and, and formality. I mean, universities are very form, formal places and have very formal procedures and processes. But right now is a time for informality, get, being open to new ideas and there's new, there's new mechanisms and new arena required to make that happen. Now, ASU have done it themselves by creating Ed Plus over a long period of time and building up their GSV, ASU GSV Summit over 13 years. I don't think Australian universities have got the time to wait for building that up in the same way. We've got to, we've got to go a long way quickly, and I think that's what we see the opportunity is for HeadX to facilitate our Australian universities making that journey. And that, that message has come loud and clear from the market to us, and so we're responding to that, and we'll announce it in uh, either our next podcast or the one after, but that's all I have time for on today's episode of HeadX. Thanks, Martin. Thanks very much, Carl. 